may be seated. So last week we finished up the book of Galatians, and uh, this week we're going back to 1 Samuel. Uh, Amanda texted me earlier in the week and said, uh, so what's the text for this week? And I said, uh, 1 Samuel 1 through, uh, through 25. And she's like, you mean 1 Samuel 1, 25? And I'm like, no, 1 Samuel 1 through 25. So we couldn't read it because that, that would be all we could do. But we're going to try to go through it. So I need you guys to listen really fast today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But my hope is, is that today we can review 1 Samuel 1 through 25. We can pick up next week in, in chapter 25 and then start hitting it for the summer. This summer we will be in 1 Samuel and uh, in the fall we're gonna, we'll, we'll go back to Luke. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel for, for a little bit. So the story starts with a lady named Hannah. And Hannah was un- unable to have any children And she desperately wanted to have a child. And so she found herself at the temple. And so she went to pray to God to give her a child. She understood that it is the Lord that opens and closes the womb. And so she called out to God for a child. Well, Eli, who was the high priest there, saw her praying. She was standing there praying in her heart, but she was moving her lips. So Eli, being a a crusty old goat assumed that she was drunk. And so he said, well, how long are you going to stay being drunk coming to church? That's the, the, uh, the North Glencoe translation. But uh, she said, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying in my heart because I have a great desire. And Eli said, well, whatever it is you're praying for, God's going to grant. And sure enough, a young baby boy was born named Samuel. And Samuel, when he got old enough, was given back to God. Uh, Hannah made him a little uh, priestly outfit and put it on him and gave him over to the Lord. Now, Eli's sons, again, to go to the North Glencoe translation, were but the heathens. They were doing a bunch of stuff they shouldn't be doing. They were going to church, picking up the ladies. They were there. Uh, there was a particular type of meat that they were supposed to get from the sacrifice that was brought. They didn't like that kind of meat. They wanted steaks. And so they ate whatever meat they wanted to. And Eli didn't do nothing about it. He let them continue to be heathens. And so one evening, Samuel was laying in the bed about to go to sleep. And he heard, Samuel, Samuel. Since Samuel wasn't crazy, he assumed it was Eli. And he jumped up and went to Eli and said, yes, what do you need? And he said, I didn't call you. What are you talking about? Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. He lays down. He hears again. Samuel. Samuel. Samuel hops up, goes to Eli. Yes, sir. What do you need? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed, boy. Now, I understand some people have read this story and said, look, he goes through this cycle three times. Why doesn't Samuel understand quicker? Any of you who have kids know they will find an excuse to get up in the middle of the night, won't they? My kids will wander around the house. It's midnight, and I hear in there, what are you doing? Uh, I wanted a drink of water. And then if they get a drink of water, then what do they got to do? They got to go potty. And so Eli apparently had dealt with this for a while because he lets them go through this cycle. So in the thir- after the third time, Eli figures out, hey, this isn't just a kid being silly. He said, if you hear it again, I need you to say, hear my Lord. And whatever the Lord tells you, that's what you need to do. So sure enough, on that fourth time, Samuel, Samuel, hear my Lord, speak, 
And so the Lord told Samuel that a great thing is about to happen in Israel so that everybody's ears who hear of it will tingle. And what he told him was, my patience with Eli's sons is no more. I'm going to take out. Eli's household will not serve any longer. You're going to serve. And so the next morning, Eli came to Samuel and said, hey, well, what did you hear? And Samuel wasn't too excited to have to share that information. But Eli said, tell me every word. Don't hold anything back. And so Samuel told Eli, and Eli went on his way. God will not be patient for long if we just keep doing what we want to do and ignore him. One of the themes in the first part of Samuel is that God is holy, and he will not be reduced to a role where we just do what we want to do and play lip service to him. And I read, as I've read 1 Samuel this week, I've thought, oh, how often we do that. We do our service to God, but we're not thinking about Him. We're not being obedient. We're just doing whatever, what we always did. Well, God's patience was done. He said, no more. I'm going to take care of this. Not only did Eli act that way, the children of Israel acted that way. Oftentimes we see that things rise and fall on leadership. And here the children of Israel were fighting the Philistines. They were going up against the Philistines and they lost a battle and they said, I know what we need. We need God. I'm here to tell you, God will not be your pocket God. I'm often, because we lived in Turkey, I'm often asked, do you believe that Allah, the God that Muslims worship, is the same God who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And I will say, no, that he is not the, the same God. But, hold it, stop, let's pause for a minute. I would say, that most of the people that I'm around in church, the God that they worship is some Santa Claus in the sky who's not stressing on their sin, who's just up in heaven waiting on them to come and ask for something, and that the rest of the time God's just kind of hanging out. That's not God either. That is an idol of our making. It's the same idol that the Israelites worshipped here when they were, their back was up against the wall and they needed God. They started digging in their pocket and God was their rabbit's foot that they thought they could get out and rub and God would come running. Well, God ain't our rabbit's foot. And so they said, hey, we need God, so go grab the Ark of the Covenant. We'll take that into battle and now we can't lose. And they forgot that that's not how, the, how God works. God doesn't work on our timing. God doesn't do what we want Him to do. And so they marched the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and they lost the battle, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken. When the news of that got back to Eli, he was leaned back on a chair, and when he was told, he fell back and broke his neck and died. Apparently, the story tells us, the story's honest, the Bible tells us the truth. Uh, uh, He was a fat man, and when he was leaning back, he fell and broke his neck. His sons died in the battle. So God, what he had told Samuel would happen, happened. And so now, the Philistines have the Ark of God. They make the same mistake as the Israelites do, and they think that this box is where God is, and so they think they got them Israel's good luck charm. So they march that box into their temple, where they have a giant statue of Murdoch, this, their God that they worship. 
And they thought, well, we'll add God to our God. The Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. You don't add God to what, whatever you want to do and call that Christianity. Don't we so often do that? So the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in, in the temple, and they went to bed that night, and they got up in the morning, and their big god, their gold god Murdoch, which I've seen pictures of, and it's a very strange god. It's got a fish head. Regardless, it's laying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they have to set their God back up. And so they get some guys in there and they get some pulleys and they set their God back up. If you've got to set your God up, he's probably not a very powerful God. Just saying. Next morning they get up and the same thing has happened. Bam, Murdoch is laying on his face before God. They're like, what is the world? So they set their God back up again, go back to bed. The next morning they get up and not only is Murdoch laying face down but his head and his hand are sitting on the threshold of the temple. God wanted to be sure that they understood who's the most powerful, you little God, Murdoch, or me. In fact, the story tells us that to this day, in the temple of Murdoch, people didn't step on the threshold because that's where their God's head was. Well, everybody in the town that they were in with the, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant got... And the text is unclear. Some people have said that it's... And I, I don't want to you know, say this a missed company, but they got hemorrhoids. <clears throat> Everybody in the church... And there were apparently rats involved. So they take the ark and take it to the next city. And guess what? Everybody in that city gets tumors or whatever it is that, that, that it's talking about. And, and there, somehow there are rats involved. And so they go to take it to the third city. And the people in that city said, No, you're not bringing that thing here. No, I don't think so. And so they have a council, and they go, what are we going to do? And they said, well, let's send the ark back to the Israelites. But to make sure that it's not just a coincidence, what we'll do is put the ark on a cart, and we'll take two calves who have just been weaned from their mom that have never pulled a cart before, and we'll let those calves go. And if the calves go to their mama, then we'll know that it was just a coincidence. If the calves go to Israel, then we know that the Israelites' God's really powerful. What do you think happened? As soon as they let those calves go, they hightailed it to Israel. And they put in the, 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 with the ark, in the cart, they put some gold tumors or whatever it was. I don't even want to think about what that would have looked like. And some gold rats. Just, to, just in case. So, the ark is returned back to Israel. Now, the people, Samuel uh, was a a um, judge in Israel. He went around from city to city. He judged them on what was going on. And the, as Samuel was getting old and Samuel's sons were, were acting the fool, the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king. We're tired of this whole judges thing. We want a king. And Samuel was not pleased. But God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Samuel had warned them. If you get a king, a king's going to take your sons to battle. If you get a king, where there's a king, there's taxes. We don't have a king in America, but we still got the taxes. He's going to send your sons to battle. He's going to take your daughters and make them handmaidens for, for his queen. You don't want a king. And they said, yeah, we want a king. And God said, give them their king. Oftentimes, God gives us what we want, knowing full well that it ain't what we need. But, and so in this case, uh, 
Saul starts looking for a king, and we're in, or Samuel starts looking for a king, and we're introduced to the character of Saul. Now, the Bible tells us that Saul was a good-looking guy who's a head taller than everybody in the city. He was the guy that if you looked at him, you'd go, that guy's a king. He was dapper. He was tan. He was the good guy. So, the story picks up with Saul not acting real kingly. His daddy had lost some donkeys. I feel like as I'm reading this story that I'm, I'm, this is all happening in Mayberry. So his daddy had lost some donkeys, and him and his buddy go looking for the donkeys, and they can't find the donkeys, and so they go, well, let's go ask the prophet over here if he knows where the donkeys are. And so they go to, to Samuel to ask him if he knows where the donkeys are, and God tells Samuel, that's the next king. And so Samuel anoints Saul right there and Saul goes back home, tells his dad about the donkey. Actually, the donkeys had already been found, but tells his dad everything that happened except the part about being king. He kept that part to himself. So Samuel announces, hey, I found your king. And so they cast lots, which is kind of like rolling dice, and and it falls on a particular tribe. And then they bring everybody in that tribe, and they cast lots, and it falls on a particular family. And they bring that family forward, and they cast lots, and it falls on Saul. But they can't find Saul, because Saul has run off. Well, the lots fell to Saul. Saul's going to be the next king. Where's Saul? And in his very first kingly act, they find him hiding in the luggage. He's got a bunch of bags around him. What? What, what? what are we talking about? Because he was nervous. He was scared. And we see that throughout the life of Saul. In fact, at one point, Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, you think of yourself as a little man, even though God has made you king. So Saul is anointed as king. And he goes and fights, and God uses him. We see a story where uh, Saul, after he is anointed as king, um, and God renews the kingdom, Samuel is done. He gives his farewell address. And then we we see a a situation where uh, Saul is fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines are mustered. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen like sand on the seashore are out there. Now Samuel had told Saul, I'm going to come make the sacrifice. And Saul is waiting. He's looking out across the field and like sand on the sea, he can see the Philistine armies and he doesn't have time to wait for God. Come on, come on, come on. We got to go, we got to go. And so he decides to do the sacrifice himself. Samuel is not happy when he shows up. What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered, I said, Now the Philistines will come down. And he had all these excuses why he didn't do what God had told him to do. You know, we've talked about before that the biblical word for confession, if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess is just a word that means to agree, to say the same thing. Now what that means is, is that if God's called something sin, we, when we confess it, say that it's sin. 
See, it amazes me when people get caught in sin, what they want to tell you about is all the reasons why they were, had special circumstances so that it was okay for them to do that particular thing. I, sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get people to say the word. I was, just, I was just in bad circumstances and I made a poor decision. No, you stole! You didn't make a poor decision. You took something that wasn't yours and you stole. Well, I just told that situation in, in, in a light that didn't uh, make me look as bad. No, you lied! You lied and you knew while you were saying it that you were lying. We agree with God that our sin is sin. And here we have Saul going, well, see, this is why all the things that I did that led up to me doing what I was going to do. And so we see here that Saul is not going to be the guy that God's going to stick with forever. In fact, in just a few chapters, Saul is told to go and to kill a particular group of people that's battling against the children of Israel. God says, go and kill every one of them. Kill their cows, kill their lambs, kill, kill everything. I remember, you know, I've gotten into some trouble uh, because I, I uh, have always had a tendency to run my mouth. It actually is a gift that God gave me. I hope you enjoy it that I'm running my mouth. Um, I got in some trouble. I know this is going to be shocking for some of you, but when we did the baby dedication... I said some things about a particular person from the North Pole that was shocking to some of those kids, and I caught a lot of heat about that, okay? Sorry. Again, if you're a parent in here, my bad. I just, I, I wasn't thinking. I was wrong. <laughs> See how I did that? So, I was teaching this particular lesson about Saul uh, killing every, everybody and I, uh, at a church. And there happened to be a lot of kids in the church as I was telling the story. And I, I went just a little too far in the description. And I'm like, he was supposed to kill everything. He was supposed to kill the little bunnies. He was supposed to kill the calves. He was supposed to kill the little lambs. He was supposed to kill everything. And I look and there's a little girl in the front row just crying her eyes out. And I'm like, ooh, I'm going to hear about that. Mm, that's not going to be good. Regardless... Saul was commanded to destroy everything, and he did, except he kept the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle, and he kept the king alive. Because it was tradition in those days, if you defeated somebody in battle, you made the king your servant. It was a way to kind of say, look what I did. So Samuel comes up on the scene, and he says, Saul, have you done what God commanded you to do? Oh, I've done exactly what God commanded me to do. I obeyed God completely. And Samuel says, why then do I hear sheep? Oh, well, the people wanted us to keep the best sheep so that we could sacrifice them to God. And Samuel says those famous words, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To do what you're supposed to do is so much better than getting forgiveness. I shared with CR when I preached there two Sundays ago. I heard a, a listened to a sermon that was preached um, during the Together for the Gospel conference, and there's a particular phrase that's really convicted me. And the speaker said, "If the only time you pray about your sin 
is when you're asking God to forgive you, you're not fighting your sin. You're training your soul to sin. If the only time that you talk to God about your sin is when you're going, God, forgive me, and you're not praying about it any other time, then you're not really battling your sin. You're just doing what you want to do. And then putting a little salve on your conscience when you're done. That's what Samuel's telling Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now Samuel's old here at this, and so he says, bring the king to me. I, in my mind, I can picture this crusty old man there with the sword, and the Bible says that he hacked the king to death. And Samuel, Saul is told that God has removed the kingship from you. God rejected Saul. In uh, chapter 15, verse 20, he says, I wrote the wrong verse down, so no, that's what he didn't want to say. Wow. Okay, so God said, I'm not going to allow you to be king anymore. So then we're introduced to David. And again, Samuel goes out, he knows the family that, he, that God has called. God had told him that. And he goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse has all these sons that he lines up in front of David. And he looks at the first guy, and he's this big, strong, strapping man. And Samuel says, surely that's the king. And God said, nope. And he goes to the next one. And that guy looked like he was Charles in charge, and he's ready to go. And he says, surely that's the guy. Nope. And that's the way it goes all the way down until he runs out of Jesse's sons. And he says, do you not have any more sons? And Jesse goes, well, we've got one, but he's out watching the sheep. Now, what that means is, is that David was so young that he was of no value around the farm except to stand there and watch the sheep eat. And I will tell you, we've glamorized the idea of a shepherd, but a shepherd's job is to stand there and watch critters eat, and that is not an exciting job. So they call David in from the field, and God says, again, these beautiful words, man looks on the outward, I look at the heart. God was looking for a man who loved him. If you want to serve God, if you want to be used by God, the place to begin that is in your closet on your knees. Because God wants a person of character. And so here, God says, that's my man. Right there, that little kid. And Samuel anoints him, the least of Jesse's sons. Well, we kind of fast forward a little bit, and the Philistines have gathered again, and Saul is going to go fight them. David, still out watching the sheep, gets called in, and his dad gives him some sandwiches and stuff to send to his dad. I mean, to send to his brothers. Again, the North Lanco translation. So he gets his sandwiches and all the stuff that he's got to get to, and he goes out. And as he's approaching, this humongous giant of a man walks out and starts mocking the children of Israel. Well, this young buck starts complaining, hey, wait, why are we letting this guy talk like this? And David's brother says, why don't you shut up? Having been around boys, the way they talk to each other, I can hear it just as clear as day. What you need to do, you little runt, shut your mouth. 
And David says, well, I have fought a lion, and I have fought a bear, and I will fight him. And his brothers are like, you need to shut your mouth. But word gets back to Saul that David is willing to be a champion. I don't know what game Saul is playing, but he calls David and says, why do you think you should be able to do this? And David tells him again the story of, as a shepherd, how he's fought a lion, how he's fought a bear. I got it. I'm on this. Saul tries to put his armor on David, and David looks like a little kid wearing his daddy's clothes. This ain't going to work. Now, there's a story, and those of you who are on Wednesday night, don't tell anybody how this goes, because we talked about this Wednesday night, where Jesus is on a road to Emmaus. And he meets some of his disciples. And the Bible tells us that he showed them throughout the Bible how, starting with Moses and going through the prophets, the Bible spoke of him. And we've all heard the story of David and Goliath. It is an amazing story. It is one of those stories that as I hear the story and see, I can in my mind I can see this young shepherd walking up, picking up some rocks and putting it in his pouch. This big, huge giant of a man mocking this little boy that's coming toward him and saying, what am I, a dog that you come to me with sticks and rocks? Today you will die. And that little David looks at him and says, so that everyone here will know that God reigns and that God does not fight his battles with swords and spears. Today, people will know that there's a God and he reigns. And today, I'll feed you and your friends carcass to the birds. We hear that and we want to be David. I don't know about you, but I've heard the sermon preached a thousand times where you're David and your troubles come up against you. So take the rocks that God gives you and God will give you the strength and you can fling them and knock down David. See, the problem with that kind of a translation of a story like this, let's just be honest here. Sometimes we miss Sometimes I don't have the guts to stand there in front of Goliath. And so if we read the story that way and make ourselves the one who the story's about, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. But if what Jesus told his friends on the road to Emmaus is true, and that all the scripture is pointing to him, a much better way to look at this story is, is Goliath is this huge monster of my sin that sneaks up behind me, that wants to destroy me, my enemy that wants to do everything in his power to destroy my family, to destroy my marriage, to destroy my ministry, to destroy this church and your life, to destroy you. There's nothing I can do about it. In fact, if we've got to be in the story, we're the children of Israel huddled in the corner going, ah! No, that young man who's got the guts to look at Goliath and say no today so that all the world will know that there's a God and he reigns that's not me that's Jesus and as Jesus marches out there's no doubt he's going to win and my enemies is going to fall 
David flung that rock, whack, hits him right in the head. Boom! Down Goliath fell. David took Goliath's sword because he wasn't big enough to carry one of his own. And that day, David got ahead. The story moves on. David and Saul's brother are close. I mean, they are bosom buddies. They are friends that are made in combat. They're friends that are made in a fighting position. They're friends that go deep. And God starts using them to overcome Israel's enemies. And Saul gets jealous. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and songs of joy. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And instead of Saul being happy that his enemy was being defeated, the text says Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And so that next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he established in his heart that he was going to kill David. Poor Jonathan stuck between his dad and his best friend. Saul tries to kill David multiple times and David, who's done nothing wrong, runs to the caves. I love the stories of the caves. I don't know about you, but I live sometimes in the caves. If you think about this situation, David hasn't done anything wrong. David didn't go politicking to be the new king. He didn't put signs up in everybody's yard. He didn't go glad hand and shaking hands. God's the one that made that decision. David didn't go to the field that day looking to fight Goliath. He was just obeying his dad, taking him some sandwiches. And yet, here now, David is running for his life. And if we don't understand that God is just as faithful in the caves as he is when we're facing the giants, then we don't understand God. I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that in those big moments, those times when it seems like they're high crisis, I don't have problems standing then. When somebody comes and face-to-face wants to start mocking my faith, or, you know, I've told you guys the stories about the time when I was stuck in a, a mosque in, in the capital of Turkey, and four or 5,000 people were bowed down, and I'm standing there going, this isn't good. In those moments, that's not a trial of faith. Because we know that God's faithful. But it's a different story on those day after day after day after day after day, grinding days. I've had some guys that the the VA has asked me to do some counseling with, and I hear over and over and over again. The battle wasn't nearly as hard 
is trying to figure out where I fit here. That wasn't the hard time. This is the hard time. I think that we have an easy time remembering that God's faithful in the fight. We have a hard time trusting God in the caves. I think the caves of Agilom are a beautiful picture of that struggle that some people have with depression. Of darkness, no end in sight. That overwhelming feeling of, I just want this over! I mean, David's been anointed king. The servant of God poured the oil on his head and said, you are the next king of Israel. But there's no throne room. He's hiding in a cave. Doesn't feel real kingly. Every person in here, we know that we are a child of the king. That our father, the same father that created Everything has adopted you. But right now when it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm sitting in a dark bedroom, it just feels so alone. But God is just as faithful in the caves as he is on the plain. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we just have to remember that our battle station is on our knees. That in those moments, we, like David, cry out to God and we say, Hear my prayer. Incline your ear to me. Listen to me, God. I need you. In Psalm 23, David doesn't say that God will keep you from the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't say that. In fact, if you read the text, it kind of assumes you're going to walk through those valleys. It says you won't leave me or forsake me. And so when you need him, reach for his hand. Those caves. And then we see fall, Saul's sin comes full circle. Saul is chasing after David. David had gone by the ten, uh, a uh, the, the, the temple and he had got, or the tabernacle, and he had eaten showbread that was only lawful for the priest to eat, and he had gotten the sword of Goliath. Saul uh, sends his guys to look for David, and they find uh, that he's gone, and so Saul now oversees the slaughtering of the men of God in that place. Now, if you look at Saul's descent, it's a lesson for us. Saul started out impatient, still pretty much obeying God, but not doing it the way he was supposed to. Outright disobedience, where God said to do this, and I'm not going to do it, but I got some excuses. And then now we see him wicked and ugly, slaughtering the men of God. Do you think that if you had asked Saul way back here when he was just impatient and sacrificed on his own, that he would have ever thought that he would have descended to that point? That tells me that even as Christians, we need to be careful 
We need to be careful or allowing those little sins, or the sins that we call little, into your life. Because the devil is smart. Our enemy is, knows us. He's not going to, you know, I've said before, I'm not going to walk out here on the way home and somebody meet me in the parking lot and say, hey man, you want some heroin? And that'd be a temptation. But I'm a fool if I don't think that sin is crouching at the door. The devil goes one little step at a time. One little step at a time. So that each one of those steps feels normal and natural and not that big a deal. Over the arc of time we see, oh, how he has fallen. I read this next week, the next week is the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're having to deal with multiple ministries in the convention that where pastors have fallen to sexual sin, where pastors have done things that they weren't supposed to, and they, all of that is going to be, we're going to be talking about that because some of those pastors pastored huge churches. None of those pastors one morning got up and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to cheat on my wife. No, it started when they let their mind go wherever it wanted to go. The battle was lost up here first. And then... They're looking at stuff on their computer they really shouldn't be looking at. But it's not that big a deal. And then there's that girl in the office. She's cute. We're just flirting. We're just cutting up. It's no big deal. We're just, we're just being friendly. You want me to be a jerk to her? Well, we just went to lunch. I mean, we just went and got, grabbed something to eat. It's not a big deal. And then a family's destroyed. Ministry's destroyed. The church is openly mocked. The cause of Christ is hurt. One little bitty step at a time. We have to guard ourselves way back here. We have to watch what goes through our mind. We have to watch what we think. We have to watch what we say. We have to watch who we hang around with. We have to guard our hearts here. We have to have people in our lives who look and say, Hey, brother, I love you. Do you really think you need to be going there? We've got to have people in our lives that are saying, Hey, you know what I read in God's Word today? So that I go, You know, I haven't been in God's Word today. I really need to go hunt for myself we got to have things going on that protect us. David prayed in the Psalms, God, protect me from presumptuous sins so that I will be safe from the big sins. And so we see that in Saul's life. He walked one little step at a time from just being impatient all the way to open-handed slaughter of the priest of God. And he took it one little step at a time. Saul is hunting David. And we find we the last sermon that we preached on this text, Saul had David was hiding in a cave. Saul had gone in the cave to use the facilities. Everybody's saying, kill him. Kill him. Kill him. He's right here. God delivered him into your hand. And Saul said, uh, David said, I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed. 
We need to learn that no matter what everybody else in this world does, we need to do what we need to do. We've got to stop looking at the world and using it as our guide. We have a book that tells us exactly what to do. We just don't read it. And when we do read it, we try to talk it away. We just need to do what we're supposed to do. And not worry about what everybody else is doing. And it amazes me because when my kids were a little bitty, that was the thing we would say all the time. And I know my kids, I could just feel their eyes rolling throughout this room. I got five, so they're everywhere. Um, but I would tell them because, you know, you get this all the time. It all started when she hit me back. It's going to take you a minute. Um, and I will say, I don't care what she did. You do what you're supposed to do. And yet in my own life, how often I want to do what I want to do, and I say, well, everybody else is doing. We see David here showing his character because he knew that God said, do not lift your hand against my anointed. And so even though all of his buddies would say, kill him, kill him, even though the circumstances were perfect, all of these problems could be solved. It was at that moment that David showed his true colors. He cut off the corner of his robe so that Saul could be told he was still a man. He still had to say, nanny, nanny, boo and boo. I had you. But he did not lift his hand against God's anointed. And so that's where we are. Next week, we're going to pick up in 25 where Samuel dies. I hope, I'm sorry that we had so much information to cover so quick. I hope that through this text, as we come to a time of invitation, there have been several things. I, I, I tried really hard not to re-preach the 20-some-odd the sermons that we had in this text last year. But um, I want us to, to have a feel of the flow of the text so that as we pick up and we start digging deep in 1 Samuel, we know where we are. I will say... The text that I've wrestled with in my conviction this week has really been that God is the same God in the caves who He is in the plains. That's a reminder I needed to hear. We want to have a time of invitation where if God has convicted you of anything, as a believer, God has told us that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, you've never looked at Christ and said, you I need you to forgive me. I need you to be my God and my King. Then I would love to take this morning and explain that. And if you're in this room and you're looking for a church home, a place to get into the fight, we would love to have you join us. Father God, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. I pray that you bless the hearers and the obeyers of your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we, for the next few months, dig deeply into 1 Samuel, God, that you would expose your son evermore to us and that we would worship him. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.